0: Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick, and we're back with another anthology of horror episode. I think we're into the Halloween hangover part of the year. Is that right? This is actually going to be airing in November now. That's right. We're recording this the week of Halloween.
1: We wanted to keep recording Halloween content the week of Halloween, which means Halloween lasts uh, an extra week uh, in our publication schedule. This is indeed going to be Anthology of Horror Volume 6, or we might say it's Volume 666 because we're going to be considering some infernal subject matter in this one.
0: Do you know that uh, due to textual variance in the ancient manuscripts of the New Testament, there is some debate about whether the original number was 666 or 616. They apparently both work as a cipher for the the name of Caesar Nero.
1: Hmm. Well, it's it's interesting, but you got to admit, 616, not nearly as uh, sinister. It doesn't have the that doesn't have the cinematic um, uh, qualities, you know, it doesn't have all that, uh, although all the, it, it's not backed up by, um, by
0: our B-cinema and our horror fiction. Though it does look a little bit ominous with the two sixes kind of closing in on the one. I don't know. Yeah, I, I could see it working, but, but I think you're right that the three sixes work better.
1: Now, if you're not familiar with the anthology of horror episodes that we put out around Halloween, uh, this is basically what the gimmick consists of. We pick, we each pick some uh, some particular episodes from either sci-fi horror. Uh, TV anthology shows or anthology films. You know, this this is stuff like on TV, Tales from the Crypt, Tales from the Dark Side, Black Mirror, etc. And then in the cinematic tradition, um, it's stuff like Tales from the Dark Side, the movie or Stephen King's Cat's Eye, that sort of thing. Uh, Movies that contain generally like three or more mini segments, each one a self-contained story with some sort of narrative structure holding it all together. Did
0: we actually do Stephen King's Cat's Eye in a previous year?
1: I don't think we did. I was tempted to this year because they have that Quitters, Inc. episode you yes. know, where uh, uh-huh. James Woods uh, learns to quit smoking by uh, having his family tormented by maniacs. Right. It's like, so a, it's,
0: it's like a smoking cessation clinic run by the mob and they, yeah. they terrorize you. But like anything that James Woods is in, James Woods is the scariest part. Yeah. It's
1: a... Uh, um, I'm not sure how that film really holds up. I mainly, when I think back on that film, I mainly remember the bit with the little girl and the little troll. Mm Mm-hmm. And the and the giant bedroom set they had to construct to make it possible because I, one of the cool things is I got to to, to to meet a guy who worked on that production no and way he, yeah and he had some some photos from the set of this giant bed because once they built it they had to build a giant bed so they could have somebody in that troll suit mm-hmm. uh, walk around on it and so there were pictures of the cast members on the bed you know uh, posing with it uh, so it was uh, it was a lot of fun I think it is the most the, the, the most fun uh, aspect of that particular film. Certainly the most memorable.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, if you haven't seen it, the basic premise is that there's like a Ken doll-sized troll that comes out of the wall at night and is attempting to suck a little girl's life spirit out, but her cat must protect her. And so the cat is actually the hero of the story, maybe much like one of the films we're going to be talking about a little bit later.
1: Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, cat, Cat's Eye does tie into something we're going to discuss here in a little bit. But before we get to the infernal world of cats, we're going to have to consider uh, the infernal world of demonic bargains. So, Joe, set up your selection for Anthology of Horror, Volume 6.
0: Okay, I think I've established a precedent, uh, at least in one of the previous years, maybe in both, that I've always got to talk about a Treehouse of Horror, because uh, <laughs> I love The Simpsons. The Treehouse of Horror episodes are maybe my favorites of all time, and today I'm going to be talking about The Devil and Homer Simpson. This is one of the all-time great Treehouse of Horror segments. It is, I think, from season four from Treehouse of Horror uh, 3.
1: Yeah, th- this this always throws me off anytime I'm trying to keep my treehouses straight, because each one has a different number it's one off from the uh the the season year mm-hmm. so i lose track if i'm if i'm looking for 4 am i talking about season 4 am i talking about treehouse 4
0: yeah it's like centuries right how like the first <laughs> century does not start with the number 1 the second century starts with the number 1 yeah yeah
1: it's easier to just start watching treehouse of horror episodes and just stop
0: uh when y- you can't really take it anymore yeah <laughs> Uh, But okay, so the premise of The Devil and Homer Simpson is that Homer Simpson is trapped at work in his boring job at the nuclear power plant. I think he's supposed to be the safety inspector, and he is fiercely covetous of a snack. He really wants a donut, but Lenny and Carl ate all the other donuts, or somebody ate them. And then Homer goes looking for his emergency backup donut, opens up like a book that he's cut out the inside of. I I think it's the the operation manual for his, uh, nuclear safety equipment. And, uh, he finds that in fact, the donut that's supposed to be in there is missing. And instead there's a note that says like, dear Homer, I owe you one donut. Uh, and he's, you know, like, oh, damn it. He's always one step ahead of me. Mm -hmm. Uh, so he announces to no one in particular that he would sell his soul for a donut. And of course, when you're talking to nobody in particular, there is somebody listening and it's the devil. (laughs) So Satan appears in the form of Ned Flanders with goat legs and a pitchfork and a cool red jacket, and he makes a deal with Homer. The devil will supply Homer with a donut, and Homer will render his soul. Now, briefly, Homer believes that he's outsmarted the devil because he realizes he can eat all but the last bite of the donut and still keep his soul. But then, unfortunately, sometime later, Homer is maybe sort of sleepwalking or at least is hungry for a midnight snack. And he disregards the notes all over the leftover donut bite in the fridge that say things like dad's soul donut, do not eat. And he eats it. And then when he does, Flanders appears to claim his prize. But then Marge intervenes. And she says, you know, Homer should receive a fair trial. So in the meantime, Homer gets sent to hell for a day where the demons attempt to ironically torture him by force feeding him thousands of donuts. But Homer doesn't really seem to be bothered by this. And in the end, Homer wins the trial, Merchant of Venice style, on a technicality when Marge cleverly proves that he had in fact already handed over possession of his soul to somebody else, to her. So the soul was not really his to sell in the first place, so it was, it was a, 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 a no-go deal to begin with. But then in the end, the devil gets his revenge, and he turns Homer's head into a giant donut, which Homer will of course forever be picking at and, and snacking on. Yeah, you get the idea that that
1: he's still pretty doomed cuz he's it's like the next day or something, you know, and he's already picking at his his donut hit. Uh-huh.
0: Yes, it's the same kind of uh bad thinking that led them to keep the original piece of of Homer's soul donut in the fridge instead of just like throwing it out or destroying it or something. Right. Yeah, this this is a wonderful episode.
1: Uh, one one of these episodes I have watched just more times than I can remember. Uh, I watched it this year, in fact, as we introduced our son uh, to the Simpsons Treehouse of Horrors, Horror episodes. One of my favorite parts of this is that, uh, is that when we get to the actual trial, uh, of course, Lionel Hutz uh, briefly serves as the Simpsons defense attorney uh, during yes. the proceedings uh, before, I believe he runs away like he, he quit. The great thing about Lionel Hutz is that he always has, uh like enormous overconfidence that mm-hmm. he can do these things but like but has is so incapable <laughs> of uh of performing uh but then he he in this episode he realizes it asks to go to the bathroom and like escapes through the window
0: he's the quintessential american character just endless confidence no competence and in the end runs away right there's also a great moment where he's just combing his hair with a fork as he walks into frame yeah So obviously, this is a great opportunity to talk about deals with the devil, uh, because I I think deals with the devil are interesting in in multiple domains, one from a sort of uh, history of religions point of view and another from a psychological point of view. And one of the things I'd like to start by talking about is that while the contract with the devil, the deal with Satan may seem like a perversion of the religious impulse, I would argue that actually – The more personalized and asymmetrical relationship between God and the believer in the modern Abrahamic religions is really the qualitative outlier uh, from a historical perspective for a huge amount of religion throughout all of history. The relationship between the believer and the gods has been seen as significantly more practical and contractual. You know, from this god, I want this particular blessing or favor, and in return, I offer this ritual or this sacrifice – uh, so, for example, in ancient Roman religion, there is actually a term for this. It's do ut des, meaning I give that you might give back. So I will sacrifice a goat at your shrine or I will do whatever ritual. I will burn incense for you. And in return, you will give me a good harvest or you will heal my sick child, etc.
1: Yeah, and, and this also – like it's an easy, uh, an easy parallel
0: to, say, uh, pledging your loyalty to some sort of tribal lord. Exactly. I mean, this is one of the ways in which the farther you go back in religion, the more religious relationships seem to mirror political, practical types of relationships than than, uh, a lot of the big religions do today. So in a way, the deal with the devil, I would say, is not a myth archetype that needed to be invented out of whole cloth by Christian storytellers. Instead, it just took an extremely ancient, extremely common way of practicing religion and put a nefarious infernal gloss on it. Like the part that remains unchanged is that there's devotee and they ask for some kind of supernatural deliverance or aid. But now, instead of sacrificing a cow to Minerva to get what you want, you have to pay some kind of ultimate price, some unreasonable price, like your eternal soul or your child or something. And you pay it not to some god of a particular domain, but to the anti-god, the figure of evil incarnate. So clearly the Simpsons segment here is drawing on the Christian tradition of the deal with the devil, but I, I would say that that is not a uh, an archetype that originates with Christianity. It's more a sort of reimagining of traditional religion with a very negative spin on it.
1: Yeah, I mean, it, it kind of reeks too of applying a, a satanic paint job to, uh, to pre-Christian uh, religious traditions
0: as well. Exactly. Uh, But since uh, this episode is dealing with the Christian tradition of the deal with the devil, I also want to look at the history of how that idea developed. So in the Christian tradition, the oldest story of an attempted deal with the devil that I'm aware of actually takes place in the Bible. It's in the Gospels in the New Testament. So after Jesus's baptism, uh, he goes out into the wilderness to fast for 40 days and 40 nights. And during that time, the devil appears to him and offers him temptations, and the temptations culminate in this passage in the gospel of Matthew that goes as follows this is in chapter 4 verses 8 to 9 quote again the devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory and he said to him all these things i will give you if you will fall down and worship me now of course uh, jesus refuses this temptation he says well i'm only going to worship the lord as commanded in the scripture but the suggestion of the architecture is there. If he had taken the devil up on his bargain, he would have surrendered something extremely important. It's not made clear exactly what that is, but he would have sort of like surrendered righteousness or surrendered godhood or something like that. And in return, he would be granted, you know, this great earthly power. Yeah, I guess
1: the way, the way I've often seen it presented what is like, you know, Jesus is on this mission to save the world and uh, the devil says, hey, but what if you didn't save the world? What if I set you up all nice and, uh, and and fancy here? And then you could just kind of like rule the world. That'd be pretty good too, right? Why don't we do that? Then everybody's happy.
0: Yes. And th- so there might be a question like, wait a minute, why would the devil be offering the world to Jesus? Like, wouldn't Jesus have more domain over the world anyway? That, that ah, but ties- he's, uh, he's the ruler of the kingdom of the air, though, Uh Uh, That's right. right? Yes, this gets into some interesting stuff about apocalypticism that I want to talk about in just a minute. Uh, So to follow more about the Christian tradition of the deal with the devil, I was looking at an entry in uh, the Dictionary of Biblical Tradition and English Literature edited by David Lyle Jeffrey, and there's a good entry on the the tradition of pacts with the devil by Camille R. Labossiere. So regarding the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness, Lobasi points out that uh, the primary appeals in this story are to pride, which is kind of interesting. Like in one of the temptations, Satan asks Jesus to bow down and worship him. But in the others, he simply prompts Jesus to make a vulgar display of his own power. He says, okay, you've been fasting for 40 days. If you're so hungry, why don't you turn these stones into bread? And there's a very interesting passage in the Gospel of Mark that that ties into the idea of deals with the devil as well. Uh, Now, the Gospel of Mark is the earliest of the four Gospels in the New Testament. It probably represents the earliest stages of a lot of these stories about Jesus's life. And in this story, Jesus has been performing miracles. He's healing the sick. He's exercising demons. He gathers the 12 disciples to follow him. And then in chapter 3, verse 22, he gets a challenge from the religious scholars. The religious scholars come up to him, and it says they came down from Jerusalem, and they said, quote, He hath Beelzebub, and by the prince of devils casteth he out devils. So they're saying, look, I know how he's casting out devils. He's made a deal with, with like the head demon, the chief devil, and he's using that demon power to cast out these devils so he can win win over you peasants here. Uh, and this is interesting because – so earlier this year, uh, I had the biblical historian Bart Ehrman on the podcast to talk about uh, where the Christian concepts of heaven and hell came from and how they developed over time. And if you haven't checked that episode out, I, I recommend it. I, I thought Bart was a really fantastic guest. But Mm -hmm. one of the historical trends that he talks about in a lot of his work, and he discusses in that episode as well, is the development of what's known as apocalyptic theology in Judaism in the centuries leading up to the birth of Christianity. Uh, And it's a little bit complicated, but I'll try to do the brief simplified version. And it goes like this. For many centuries, the Jewish prophetic tradition had attributed misfortunes of the Jewish people to punishment for their sins. So it would be like, oh, you were conquered by the Babylonians and your crops were eaten by the locust. That is because God is punishing you for your wickedness. But eventually over time sort of the manifest unfairness of this theology became untenable for many Jews. Uh, Like, how does it make sense that my three-year-old child is being punished for the sins of our king? And so a new theology arose within the Jewish religion to explain suffering. And that was that suffering was not punishment for sins, but it was the result of the faithful children of Israel being persecuted and victimized by forces of darkness. The idea is that there are evil rulers and evil powers who have made deals with the devil, who have gone into cooperation with a powerful evil being who is opposed to God, and this is the devil. And God will eventually destroy the devil and destroy these evil rulers who are in league with him and will right all wrongs. But until then, we're stuck under the boot of these wicked temporal powers who are allied with and empowered by Satan. It's essentially kind of a dystopian um, template for religion. Yes, very much so. But with the idea that eventually everything would be fixed, that ultimately God is sovereign, ultimately good will win over evil. But now we're stuck in this bad middle period where we're suffering under the, uh, the arrangements made with the evil forces. It's the Matrix. <laughs> kind of, yes. Though it would develop into even more matrix directions with the advent of Gnosticism which is one of the most fun things if you actually go back and watch the matrix after learning about uh, gnostic theology there are huge overlaps there that are that are very fun to to mess around with
1: yeah i'm i'm looking forward i'm not sure when will be the right time but i'm looking forward to rewatching all of those films uh, cuz it's been a long time and i know they got the matrix 4 in the works so what
0: really so, yeah <laughs> i feel more excited about that than i should be <laughs> <laughs>
1: No, there's a lot of room uh, to explore. I'm I'm interested to see what they put together.
0: But anyway, uh, to come back to these ancient uh, theological developments, another thing that I think is interesting about the development of apocalyptic theology is the idea of uh, wicked people being empowered by a pact with Satan or demons that could sort of be viewed as a logical inversion of the belief that the Jewish people – ...were protected by uh, what they called a covenant with the God of Israel. A covenant is essentially a contract that they would worship him exclusively, scorning all other gods, and he would protect them as a people. But anyway, given the popularity of this type of apocalyptic thinking around the first century CE, uh, I think it makes sense... That the author of the gospel might have a story like this here, where Jesus's enemies who don't understand him would accuse him of somehow being empowered through a pact with demonic forces. Like maybe they, uh, in the author's view here, misunderstand Jesus as one of these evil princes, one of these evil powers who has uh, been allied against the good people. It's almost like they're accusing him of selling out. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Uh, And Labassiere points out that many early Christian church fathers, such as Justin Martyr and Origen, they allege that people who possess powers like divination, so the power to uh, acquire otherwise hidden knowledge or to predict the future – that people who have these powers acquire them through arrangements with the devil, especially influential in this respect is the writing of St. Augustine uh, in his theological work on Christian doctrine. He claimed that people who have apparent magical powers such as divination or prognostication, they gain these powers through consultations, pacts and contracts with demons and there's a passage uh, uh, in St. Augustine that's quoted as an authority on this subject uh, all through the Middle Ages and is repeated in, in canon law in the Catholic Church. But in the Middle Ages, it's when the stories about these kinds of pacts get uh, get more developed. So the Middle Ages saw a proliferation of folk tales about pacts with the devil, especially concerning deals between the devil and a powerful or learned man – so one example is the story of uh, St. Cyprian, who uh, Labossiere says is a, quote, magus philosophus, or, you know, like a, a magician philosopher, a, a man of great arcane learning, uh, quote, who strikes a bargain with the devil to learn the secrets of the universe. But he, he gets turned around. He responds to the appeals of a virtuous woman uh, named uh, Justina or Juliana, and he repents of his wicked pact. So he, he gets out of it and even more well known in the middle ages is the story of theophilus of adana and i thought this was a lot of fun so theophilus was a cleric who is said to have lived in the 6th century in asia minor this would be in uh, cilicia in modern day turkey so that's like the southern part of modern day turkey and the story goes that theophilus is an archdeacon of adana he's like he's a high up guy in the church but he's a very humble and righteous man And he is elected to become a new bishop in Adana. But out of humility, he turns down the position. He's like, oh, no, no, I am not worthy. So a different guy gets elected bishop instead. But then in a cruel twist of fate, The new bishop is swayed by some false rumors about Theophilus's character, and he kicks Theophilus out of his archdeaconship, and Theophilus is mad. He does not like this, so he's like, I've been wronged, I've got to get revenge, and in a quest for revenge, he seeks out the aid of a sorcerer, or sometimes described as a necromancer, and this guy helps Theophilus write out a contract with the devil in his own blood. The devil will give Theophilus the bishopric of Adana, and in return, Theophilus will renounce Christ, renounce the Virgin Mary, and hand over his soul to Satan. And the deal goes through, and he becomes the bishop. The devil delivers his half of the bargain— but then Theophilus gets cold feet. It's like, oh, no, I really screwed up. So he, he gets scared he's going to go to hell. And he ends up fasting for a couple of periods, like a total of 70 days. He prays to the Virgin Mary to get him out of the contract. And at first, she appears to him and just really chews him out. She's like, you have been an extremely naughty bishop. You are That was very bad of you to do. But eventually, she relents and she grants him absolution. So you'd think everything's solved now, but the devil does not give up. The next morning, Theophilus wakes up with the contract that he had written in his blood lying on his chest, and I guess that's a sign that the devil is still trying to hold him to account. So next, what Theophilus does is, inspired by the Virgin Mary, he takes the contract to the bishop who had originally removed him from the archdeaconship, and he confesses everything. And the bishop then burns the contract, which frees Theophilus' soul from this infernal bargain. And Theophilus is so relieved to have his soul back that he dies of joy on the (laughs) spot. And I think this story brings up a couple features that will appear again and again in stories about deals with the devil. I think it's very interesting that you see these features repeated so often. One is that you can get out of a deal with the devil. You make the deal, you get what you want, but then upon repenting, you can sort of void the contract, so to speak, and then the second feature that appears again and again is that uh, is that you can you can get out of it with the intercession or intervention of a virtuous woman.
1: What, what I love about this is that you know, th- though uh, though fantastic and supernatural in its elements, it's basically a critique of short-term versus long-term thinking. You know. <laughs> yes. Uh, because it's it's often about like somebody like in this case oh I, I want revenge now I'm not going to think about what happens later with my eternal soul but but also just like my life past the point of getting my vengeance uh, and likewise with Homer like he's not thinking about the long term he's thinking about that immediate
0: reward he's he's failing the ultimate marshmallow test you know yes <laughs> yeah exactly I was thinking about those exact themes it's the um it's the prioritization of the temporal and uh, in a way there's this idea that people uh make decisions without thinking them through they make the decision on the basis of their appetites or their lusts or their emotions Uh, And then once they have time to think about it, they repent of the decision they have made. And often, weirdly enough, I mean, this doesn't happen in every case. Like we'll get to Dr. Faustus in a bit. And then Marlowe's Dr. Faustus, he does not get out of the deal. He just gets claimed by the devil. But in a lot of these deals, eventually, once you think it through and you say, oh, no, I really screwed up, somebody good, usually a virtuous and clever woman will intervene on your behalf and you'll get out of it.
1: I mean, to a certain extent, we see that in Dante's uh, Inferno, right? I mean, Beatrice is is kind of this this guiding light that is uh, that is there to uh, to to sort of pull like a tractor beam to pull Dante up
0: through Inferno and uh, and
1: uh, Purgatory up towards Paradise.
0: It's very interesting that in a lot of these stories, the the character who makes the deal with the devil is tempted by pride. And in the Divine Comedy, it's made explicit that Dante's main sin is pride. That's the Mm -hmm. sin that he really has to be absolved of when he goes through purgatory. And it's the main sin that Beatrice is helping purge him of. Yeah. Which is one of my favorite things about the Divine Comedy, actually, is all the passages where he's like, uh, having been cleansed of the sin of pride, I will now go back to Earth having written the greatest poem of all time and will convince <laughs> everybody that they should do, you know, that they should follow the path of righteousness because I've written the best poem ever written. Right. I mean, he did
1: He did really write a zinger there. Yeah. I mean, uh, but... Um. But, but yes, I don't, think, I don't know if you can make a strong case for the pride being completely uh, purged <laughs> from Dante.
0: But anyway, uh, so from here, La goes on to mention a number of other stories and pacts of the devil that were popular in the Middle Ages and into the Renaissance. For example, the Anglo-Norman poem, uh, which is apparently satirical, that takes the form of a full legal document resigning the soul of the signatory to the devil in exchange for the freedom to live in hedonic pleasure, hoarding wealth and exploiting the poor. (laughs) And I got to say, as a brief, like, moralistic theological note, one thing I I can sometimes – I mean, obviously, there are extreme limitations to the insights of medieval moral philosophy. But one thing I appreciate going back and and reading a lot of these rebukes of immorality from the Middle Ages is one thing that – a thing that gets singled out again and again is abusing the poor. Absolutely. Now, there are more kinds of pacts with the devil in uh, Chaucer, in the Friar's Tale, in the canon Yeoman's Tale. Uh, There's this idea that people who seek pacts with the devil are often lusting after wealth or especially secret knowledge. The ultimate secrets of alchemy seem to be a real draw for people to get into these these bad deals. Uh, Like, to chase after the philosopher's stone is to make an enemy of God – and these themes really come through in the Renaissance uh, in perhaps the most famous literary character who makes a deal with the devil, who which is Dr. Faustus. Uh, we've talked about the Faust legend on the show before. This is a story mm-hmm. with many lives, many new sets of clothes over the ages. So we won't rehash all of that here, but it is yet another tale of a a person who seeks great power and knowledge and then uh, kind of squanders it and uh, and and of course, seeks it through a deal with the devil and is ultimately claimed.
1: There's a fair amount of lust in there, too.
0: Yes. La also points out an interesting parallel that I might not have thought of otherwise, but it's uh, Shakespeare's The Merchant of Venice between Antonio and Shylock. And because of the anti-Semitic assumptions of the play, the Jewish moneylender Shylock is portrayed very much as a, a devil figure toying with Antonio's fate. Uh, And is uh, as is so often the case in these tales, Antonio is saved by the intercession of a virtuous woman, uh, Portia, who wins his case by finding a technical loophole in the wording of the contract, much like Marge does in Mm -hmm. The Devil and Homer Simpson. As for the title of the Simpsons segment is, of course, adapted from the title of the short story uh, by Stephen Vincent Benet, The the Devil and Daniel Webster, in which a New England farmer sells his soul to the devil, then hires the famous lawyer and orator Daniel Webster to represent him in a trial to get it back. And Webster's speech to the jury of the damned souls is so eloquent that they find for the defendant, even though there's no evidence on his behalf, uh, which is uh, pretty good.
1: You know, as much as we love courtroom dramas, in in especially in this country, and as much as we love, um, you know, the the, the, the the horrifying and the satanic, why have we not? Maybe we have, and I'm not aware of it. We need a Law and Order uh, infernal unit, or you know, we need a <laughs> yeah. Daniel Webster Law and Order mashup, where not just like one episode, but every episode. uh, deals with some sort of satanic bargain uh i i I mean i'm 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 half joking but i also now that i'm thinking about it like i think this has
0: legs i think this could be a series i'd watch it the perry mason of the afterlife yeah what's your favorite courtroom drama do you have one are are you a my cousin vinny guy i mean
1: no i mean i I mean what are some of the great i mean you have to go with like to kill a mockingbird right oh something like that um yeah i'm trying to think of any of the Oh, I don't know. I don't know a lot of the stuff in between. Like, I feel like it for for me to get into a courtroom drama, it needs to be it needs to be really good. Or, uh, yeah, I can't like
0: I can't think of one that's um, amusingly crappy. You know? <laughs> uh, maybe a few good men like a few good men is like entertaining, but extremely hokey.
1: Yeah. I mean, it does have that classic moment that's been uh, lamp- lampooned so many times. Um, yeah, I don't know. I I my favorite really seriously my favorite courtroom scenes are all from episodes of The Simpsons or Futurama. <laughs> yeah. All right, we're going to take a quick break but we'll be right back.
0: All right, we're back. You know, I was thinking there's another type of picture of a deal with the devil, which is the idea of deal with the devil as complement uh, like the idea that an artist or a musician or somebody is so talented uh, that their, their genius or their talent must have come from a deal with the devil, like this was said of uh, the great Delta Blues musician Robert Johnson. Mm-hmm. Uh, but of course, it was something that actual the, – like the romantic poets often said about themselves, the English romantic poets Blake and Shelley characterized literary genius and poetic energy as a diabolical pact.
1: Yeah, this is interesting, too, because I, I think it is reflected in a lot of celebrity worship culture today, but it's perhaps a way, of, on one level, like a way of trying to make sense of of extreme success. Mm-hmm. You know, you sort of have to tell yourself, well, yeah, they're highly successful at what they do and or they're highly talented, but at what cost? And and you can sort of <laughs> comfort yourself by saying, I didn't yes. pay that cost. I'm, I may not have a number one album out there, but I also didn't sell my soul to the devil. Uh, and you can feel a little better about it. And then it's also sort of, in a way, it's kind of a twisted version of of, of instead of saying, "Well, you know, um, you know, this this celebrity, they, the, deep down, they're a person too, and they're full of insecurities like I am. You know, they're they're concerned about the future, etc." Et instead of humanizing you, you kind of go in a different direction and say, "Well, yes, but they're going to hell because they made a soul a, a soul exchange <laughs> with the devil." Like I don't know, it gets very weird. Very twisted up
0: no, I think that's really good I, I think you're exactly right, in the same way that it feels good to watch a really rich person be miserable uh, yeah. it, it, it at least feels good to think about somebody who has talents and successes that you're jealous of you're like well they they must yeah, they must have done something bad to get that.
1: Yeah. They lost something in the bargain. And I guess it does. It does. You can certainly compare it to some of the stats about, say, lottery winners. Right. Mm-hmm. Where a, there's, there's a strong argument to say that that is a, a deal made with the devil. You get this enormous uh, um, you know, reward, this, this enormous cash prize.
0: But statistically,
1: it brings a lot of chaos into your life.
0: Is that true, though? I, I've heard people say that, but I uh, I think I feel like I've looked into that before, and it turns out that might not be as true as is sometimes alleged. It certainly yeah. would make us feel better for it to be true.
1: Yeah, that's the thing. It, it needs to be true for the injustice <laughs> of the universe to make sense. Right. Um, but then again, with the lottery thing, for example, I mean, I think one of the great things about that is we're always each and every one of us. You know, we're the first ones to say to ourselves. Well, you know, if you win the lottery, it's going to bring a lot of chaos into your life. But I think I can handle it. You know, we, we, <laughs> yes. we always think we're the exception. It's kind of like, uh-huh. man. I can quit a,
0: anytime I want.
1: <laughs> yeah, like making a deal with the devil or picking up a monkey's paw. That's bad news. But I think I might be able to make it work. I think I could, I, I could, I could word my demand in just the yes. right way that the devil's going to be totally cool
0: with it. I wouldn't eat the whole donut. I, I would leave that last bite and not forget about it. Yeah. Or I, I would know mm-hmm. how to phrase the monkey's paw question so that it didn't come back on me. Yeah.
1: Well, you know, going back to the Simpsons episode with the monkey's paw, you know, you have that, that wonderful segment where uh, Maggie gets a hold of it and and I think is is the only person who uses it. And it's in a way, it's like she's a child, so she makes a pure wish, you know, for just a new pacifier. Which is immediately mm. brought to her, and it doesn't seem like there's any kind of comeuppance or any dark, uh, uh, you know, d- dark uh, ramifications that come from having made that wish of the paw, unlike all the other monkey paw wishes.
0: Well, I think it's interesting that in the monkey's paw, it is a technical reading of the words of the wish that come back to bite you. But in many of these stories about the deal with the devil, such as in The Devil and Homer Simpson, it is a technical reading of the language of the agreement that actually gets you out of trouble. mm you know, trading on a loophole to escape punishment. These seem to come from the anxieties of like a literate and legalistic culture.
1: Yeah, the idea of the law itself as this domain with enough ambiguity in it that a skilled lawyer uh, or sorcerer you know they're basically <laughs> the same thing depending on how you, you
0: look at it yes uh, we'll be able to you know, pry you out of it arcane books containing formulations of language that have the power to make things happen in the world that you can't understand the lawyer is very much a sorcerer mm-hmm now, I wanted to talk about the psychology of selling your soul, and I was trying to find some good psychology studies about people selling their souls. I didn't really turn up a lot that are directly on target, but some that uh, some that are sort of on point but not as robust as I'd hoped, and then other things that sort of glance off of it in interesting ways. So the first thing I found was an anecdote in a 2012 book called The Righteous Mind by the American social psychologist Jonathan Haidt. And this book is about the psychological foundations of moral values and how these values feed into big systems like social groups and politics and stuff. And the story in the book about Selling Souls comes up in the middle of a passage about a phenomenon that Haidt calls moral dumbfounding. And this is something that you've probably encountered before. You've seen other people do it. You've done it yourself. It's where somebody makes a very strong moral judgment about something. You say, you know, that's just wrong. And then if you are asked to explain why it's wrong, you get the mental blue screen of death. You just search around frustrated for an explanation, a reason behind your moral pronouncement. Maybe you'll end up saying something, but it doesn't make a lot of sense, or you just can't think of anything at all, and yet you remain convinced of your original opinion. Uh, from another context, it's phrased as a dogmatic insistence on a moral judgment for which no good reasons can be given. And so example: there are all kinds of examples of this that are offered. A lot of them are... are read to people as very distasteful for obvious reasons. One is, would it be wrong to dip a sterilized cockroach into somebody's drink? So if I I just got a cockroach and I put it through an autoclave, so I know it's absolutely sterile, could not possibly make you sick. Would it be wrong for me to dip that cockroach in a glass of water and then give you the glass of water to drink and not tell you? Yes, that would be wrong. I feel like that would be wrong too, but it's hard to explain a – like to come up with an explanation for the reason that would be wrong. It's like, well, it can't possibly hurt them, uh, but it just feels really wrong. It feels like a betrayal.
1: Yeah, it is. It is. I see what you're, you're getting at. It is tricky to try and like make an, an argument – like you end up having to sort of – Go further out on a ledge than you think you're going to, you know, you have to say things like, well, if you would do that, like, what else are you doing to my drink? What, what, you know, what else does what else does this say about our relationship
0: that you would do this? And I'm not necessarily saying that you couldn't give a good reason, but it's like for a lot of people, it would be difficult to express one. And I want to come back to the difference Mm -hmm. there in a bit. Um, I mean, it I, would be
1: a health code violation. Yes. <laughs> regardless.
0: Well, I don't know. if Would it be if it was sterilized? It seems like you'd need special language in the health code to address that. I,
1: I have a – maybe we'll hear from health inspectors out there who listen to the show. But <laughs> I'm, I'm guessing you can't get by by sterilizing your cockroaches before exposing them. Uh, I mean – but then again, I don't know, you know, as we get more into the you know the consumption of, of insects, are there are there food grade cockroaches
0: you could use? I don't know. <laughs> but what, how would that be any different than just being sterilized? Like, it, it seems like, the implication, at least, is that. Questions like this play on just sort of like ick based intuitions we have about what's acceptable and what's not that we find hard to give justifications for based on things like utilitarian concerns about harm. Instead, it's just these things about like that just feels wrong. Hmm.
1: I, I guess I'm going to come back and say I would be okay with you doing this thing with the cockroach provided. It was a, it was like a food grade cockroach, which I, I I don't think actually exists. But if it were another food grade insect, then possibly. But then again, I don't think it's a vegetarian uh, drink anymore if you've uh, put a dead bug in it uh, intentionally.
0: All very good concerns. Uh, yeah. So so I, I want to explain my thinking about this in a bit. But first, I just want to talk about the 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 experiment. So height in this section is discussing evidence that our moral decisions are generally not actually rational. So he's sort of making the case that when we, have, when we make moral judgments, most of the time we're not reasoning to arrive at them. Instead, they're deontological intuitions. We just feel our moral decisions first, and then afterwards we use our rational minds to kind of come up with post-hoc justifications for why we felt the way we did and so some evidence of this he discusses would include the claim that uh, adding cognitive load does not change people's moral judgments. So if you give people mental work to do while they're making moral judgments, their moral judgments don't appear to change, uh, or giving uh, giving people more time to think about their answers to moral questions doesn't really seem to change them. And in the example of Selling Souls… Hyde is talking about a scenario where a graduate student of his was was offering students $2 if they would sign a piece of paper that said, I hereby sell my soul after my death uh, for the sum of $2. And then there was also fine print that said, this form is part of a psychology experiment. It is not a legal document and not binding in any way. And the students were told that if they signed the document, they were free to rip it up and consider it void the moment after they signed it, and they would still get their two dollars. And majorities of students refused. Even many students who explicitly said they were atheists and didn't believe in souls, they still didn't want to do it. And so the point here is that there's something about uh, there, there's something that we're using to make decisions apart from just reasoning about who it would harm. At least that's the case they're making.
1: Two dollars does seem like low balling. Mm-hmm. Uh, like even yeah. in the like even even into this scenario, I think I would I would turn it down. Yeah, uh, I think I would I, too. Just I mean, part of it's probably you know growing up uh, attending a you know a, a church where you're. The reality of of demons is kind of part of the the background and then being and then absorbing all of this, um, uh, this this fantasy as well, probably even seeing Treehouse of Horror as a kid, you know, uh, you end up having all this in your background and it kind of creates a sense of wrongness to engage in this, or at least there's a risk factor there that should not be uh, trifled with for a mere two dollars.
0: Well, that's – so on one hand, yeah, you could argue, well, maybe this is just some sort of deontological hangover from from previous beliefs you would have. But to come back on things, I think there are arguments against the post-hoc rationalization theory of moral dumbfounding. Like the fact that somebody can't articulate good reasons why something should be wrong – doesn't necessarily mean that there are not, in fact, good reasons. It's possible that a lot of our moral reasoning might actually be reasoning and not just deontic dogma, but it's reasoning on a subconscious level that we find hard to put into words. There are all kinds of things that people do for good reasons that you could explain in theory, but people can't figure out the right way to put it into words. So one example of this would be, On utilitarian grounds, why can't a hospital just say, like, murder one innocent patient who's there for a yearly physical and then harvest their healthy organs to save the lives of, like, you know, 10 other people who urgently need organ transplants? I I feel like if you think that that kind of statement is a defeater for utilitarian reasoning – uh that's that represents a sort of shallow interpretation of utilitarianism like imagine if something like that were to actually happen the consequences of it would be that it would totally undermine the stability of the society and of medicine in a way that would make everyone paranoid and unable to trust doctors or feel safe so it, it like the the consequences of something like that actually happening in reality would be hugely destructive in a utilitarian sense even though in the moment you have saved a number of lives and so i think there could be similar things going on with these examples about like say a contract to get 2 dollars for selling your soul Uh, I feel like I I have a kind of idiosyncratic view on this probably with regards to selling souls, because I would say, you know, personally, I'm kind of a provisional materialist. Like, I, I believe that the mind is dependent on the functioning of the physical brain. I don't see any evidence for the existence of an immaterial soul or mind that exists without the body. And yet at the same time, I think the soul is kind of a meaningful and even indispensable concept And I think it really means something to sell your soul, not in a supernatural sense, but in the sense that there are things we can do that represent a surrender of rights and claims to the deepest part of our own integrity. And in English, the word soul still captures that thing, that deep part of our integrity, probably better than any other word does, even though it does come with a lot of supernatural baggage. And thus, I think signing a piece of paper in agreement to sell your soul could be a thing you would want to resist doing, even though you don't believe in a supernatural soul. Uh, Like on the physicalist or naturalist view of the world, the brain operates strongly on the basis of habit. And doing something one time always prepares you to do a similar thing more easily in the future. And so I think I would worry that selling my soul, even in a purely symbolic sense, would kind of wound my self-image in a way that would perhaps make me less protective of my integrity in the future.
1: I feel like to come back to uh, to anchoring, it, it's also insulting to to offer two dollars for someone's soul, because even though you're going to turn them down, like you've already established that that is where you're going to begin the bidding. Yes. So yeah. even even if I come back and and I'm going to you know, say something like, well, at least offer me one hundred dollars, like that still <laughs> doesn't say I still probably wouldn't do it for one hundred dollars. But but now I'm already thinking about it because you started at two dollars.
0: I think you were actually very much on to something about that number there. I, there, There's a way in which the $2 makes it even worse because, again, even if you don't believe in any sort of supernatural, immaterial soul, the deal would represent a kind of symbolic lowball valuing of yourself. You're just saying, like, I'm yeah. not worth very much. And that hurts you to say, even in a symbolic way where you can tear up the contract afterwards. Yeah. Then to come back on the other side, though, I did find a study that seemed, at least, uh, at least on its surface value, to sort of line up with the idea of, uh, of valuing souls and things like that at a, at a dogmatic or deontological level rather than a moral reasoning level. And this was an fMRI cognition study, which, of course, we've learned to always be somewhat careful about, not rely too much on just one or two studies like this about a subject, but look for some corroboration. Uh, but this study was in Philosophical Transactions of the Royal Society B. Biological Sciences in 2012 by Gregory S. Burns, Emily Bell, C. Monica Capra, Michael J. Uh, Prietula, Sarah Moore, Brittany Anderson, Jeremy Gingace, and Scott A. Tran. And the the short version of this is that the the authors of the study put people in fMRI machines and then offered them – sums of money that would actually be paid out. So people would get real money in exchange for symbolically making statements that were about sort of sacred type values, deeply held personal values, uh, but making statements that disagreed with their actual positions. And people were very resistant to doing this in some cases uh, for understandable reasons. I think a lot of them along the lines of things we've just been talking about. And they found that, quote, using fMRI, we found that values that people refuse to sell, sacred values were associated with increased activity in the left tempoparietal junction and ventrolateral prefrontal cortex, regions previously associated with semantic rule retrieval. This suggests that sacred values affect behavior through retrieval and processing of deontic rules and not through a utilitarian evaluation of costs and benefits. So I think this finding, to the extent that it's valid, would tend to line up more with the idea that When ideas about a sacred substance are concerned, the idea of like surrendering something that is a deeply held value to yourself, you're more likely to just use the part of your brain where you intuitively automatically check the rules in your knowledge versus the part of your brain that you use to sort of think through the pros and cons of things. But anyway, uh, I guess to wrap up this section, would you sell your soul for a donut no. what would you sell your soul for what kind of pastry would it have to be
1: it has to be a pastry then? Well, i
0: mean what about a really good queen of mom
1: <laughs> oh i mean i mean if if my, my soul's being sold either way like it's a must sell situation and i have to pick a pastry I mean, I'm going to go with something big, like I'm going to go with like a, a big moon cake, um, one that's about the size of a, a, like a dinner table or something, you know,
0: uh, some sort of record setting pastry. Oh, what about one of those like Guinness Book parking lot sized pizzas? How about that?
1: No, nothing that big. Any time there's a food that, that looks like you had to use like shovels and or, and or buckets to, to bake <laughs> it or prepare it. I'm just I'm not really into it. Fills like, you with
0: confidence.
1: Yeah, it needs the food needs to have been made with actual culinary instruments and tools, and not things from the hardware store.
0: Now, is that a conclusion that you reasoned your way to, or is that a deontological judgment? I'd say the latter, but I'd agree with I, you.
1: I think it's based on watching videos of the of some of these record-setting uh, baking uh, or, or cooking uh, projects. You mm, know, that and look really and dirty. Being... <laughs> Yeah, I get being turned off by the idea of somebody using something that even if it's pristine and it's been sterilized, like you're Mm -hmm. not supposed to use a shovel to stir a chili, you know, that sort of thing.
0: This is really funny. This comes exactly back to the cockroach thing. So would you dip a sterilized cockroach in your apple juice and drink it? You know, no, you'd feel like that's icky somehow, even though it's sterilized. I've worked in restaurants before, and there are moments in a restaurant because you have to create huge portions of things that you'll be mixing up a sauce or a soup or something in buckets or even in a garbage can or something like that. And it's just like, no, no, you can't feed that to people. It is clean. They, they clean it, but it just doesn't seem right.
1: Uh, yeah, I, I, I agree. I would, I would prefer not to know about that with my, uh, with my, with my favorite restaurants.
0: <laughs> Don't go in the kitchen then.
1: <laughs> All right. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll be right back. And we're back. All right. Well, that that selection was definitely infernal. Uh, but I think, in in a in a in, in a way, our next uh, selection is also pretty infernal. So, uh, you know, generally speaking, with with horror anthology films, you have kind of a smorgasbord of horror that's presented. In some cases, the filmmakers clearly just cobbled together some some short horror films with a shaky framing narrative or a creepy host. Uh, Otherwise, the theme might be the author themselves. Uh, You know, uh, it might be, okay. these are three stories from Stephen King or these are three stories from Richard Matheson. Uh, Other times, it's more of a cultural or regional theme, such as, say, the film Three Extremes, which features East Asian horror tales. And then there is The Uncanny from (laughs) 1977. Which is i I, I feel like it 's pretty singular, uh, I, I think it might be one of a kind because it is it 's certainly unlike any other horror anthology film that i 've watched or i 'm aware of because the framing narrative and all three segments are devoted entirely to murderous house cats it 's true
0: not, and i 've watched the whole thing <laughs>
1: yeah it is eighty eight minutes of feline cinematic terror it 's wall to wall cat sounds. Cat-based jump scares, creepy music combined with cat close-ups, and some otherwise very talented actors reacting to cat, to cat scares, and, of course, cats jumping out and slashing the bejesus out of people. Uh, a lot of times with real cats uh, that are clear, I mean, there are a lot of cats in this film, mm-hmm. probably more cats in scenes in this film
0: than I've ever seen uh in a movie before. Though I would say also lots of cats in close-up. And I think these close-ups were filmed separately than the rest of the movie. So they just got lots of close-ups of cats meowing, hissing, swatting at things, and then cut those in with the drama that was going on. Which did still involve some cats, which I'm sure was a nightmare.
1: Yeah, this, is, this production was clearly a nightmare um, it, the the result is is I will say it's it's very watchable It's a film in the tradition of the the amicus productions. It has Peter Cushing in it it has Donald Pleasant, some other actors of note um, it's It's very well made um uh, and I, it, it's interesting, I'd forgotten about this film, and then I, when I was researching it and kind of rediscovered it, I realized that I had, in fact, seen the first segment, uh, and the, the first segment is the one that I, I rewatched for this episode. Uh, I think I caught it on A&E uh, back uh, when I was a kid or when I was in junior high, and I remember being creeped out at the time, and it, it, it is still effectively creepy. It is, a, it is essentially an animal's attack film.
0: Yes, but with cats. It's Jaws with cats. Yeah, it's the birds, but instead cats. Oh, the birds is a better comparison because there's not just one cat. There are many, many cats. By the way, this came out in 1977.
1: Again, uh, that is the same year that Stephen King published a short story about a killer cat, The Cat from Hell. Uh, came out in the magazine Cavalier, and this would later be adapted into the in the excellent uh, horror anthology film Tales from the Dark Side, the movie with Buster Poindexter <laughs> and William Hickey. Um, it's it's terrible, but but good.
0: I really want to spoil the ending of that segment, but I won't.
1: Yeah, it's uh, it's pretty it's, it's pretty great. Uh, you know, actually, Tales from the Dark Side, the movie is is definitely worth checking out. Not so much for this for for this one for the Cat from Hell, <laughs> but. It has a wonderful gargoyle story that I think I've mentioned before. That is essentially a retelling of a uh, of a Japanese ghost story about the the, the frost maiden.
0: Yes, the first segment I believe is the mummy one. That's just star studded. It's got lots that of well known actors in it. it. Doesn't have like Christian Slater and Steve Buscemi and people.
1: Christian Slater's definitely in it. Uh, yeah, th- that mummy tale, very loosely based on Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's work, is is pretty terrific. In that I find that it to be one of the few, certainly. Yeah, really one of the few mummy tales where they do a good job of making the mummy scary. Yeah, uh, As I recall, like the mummy at one point, like stalk, it, it stalks up on somebody and removes their brain through their nostril with like a, a coat hanger, um, which I thought was a nice touch, you know, alluding to to the the, the the practices of mummification that the ancient Egyptians employed.
0: Yeah. One of my other favorite mummy movies actually is the one that I've got the poster of right next to me right now, La Malediction de Ferron, the 1959 British mummy i it, if it i think it's hammer if it's not hammer it's very hammer adjacent via the cast it's got peter cushing it's got christopher lee it's it's, it's fantastic
1: all right well speaking of peter cushing uh, let me let me go ahead and roll up the the framing narrative for the uncanny okay peter cushing who again is always a class act always elevates anything he's a part of in this he plays a nervous <laughs> author named wilbur gray who has a new manuscript about cats about how they're actually Evil supernatural creatures—they're the devil in disguise. They're out to get us. And Cushing plays this very well, convincingly coming off as extremely jumpy and sleep-deprived due to the lingering threat of feline assassination. Uh, it has all the—he has all the air and seriousness of a character in a spy movie, you know, who's like a def- defector pursued by shadowy figures through the streets. Though, in, in, instead of it being like weird-looking agents in trench coats, it's. Cats. It's stray cats yes. and house cats that are that are stalking him at every turn.
0: It's what are the thirty nine steps, and they're they're all cats. Yeah, but uh, I, I will say this movie makes one grievous error with respect to Peter Cushing, which is that he has a scraggly beard in it. And Peter Cushing should always be clean shaven. He does not need facial hair. Having facial hair on Peter Cushing is like having Michael Myers wield a knife, but it's in a sheath. It's just, you know, it, it doesn't really capture what you're using Peter Cushing for. Yeah, so those face angles—they should be naked.
1: <laughs> so, so that's the basic setup. He comes, to, he he comes to his publisher's house uh, or apartment to talk about this script, this uh, manuscript, and of course, the publisher has a cat, which is creeping at him out a- even more. And he proceeds to talk about three different cases that are discussed in his book. Each one is a segment about murderous cats. Um, the only one that I rewatched for this episode is the first one, which is terrific. It takes place in London in 1912. And in this one, we have a wealthy old woman who decides to leave her estate to her mini pet cats who are sadly mistreated by the maid. Turns out the maid is in league with the old woman's nephew, who's, uh, who's kind of a scoundrel <laughs> and, a squ- and you know, squandering his money. He's, he's, he's a bad dude. And he w- was set to inherit everything before this new will was put in place. Well, the maid catches wind of this new plan. She hears uh, the old woman talking to uh, her attorney about it. So she tells the nephew and the nephew tasks her then with stealing the new will. Uh, because it's it's assumed that the the old lady's not going to live that long. Uh, if we can just get this new will out of the picture, then, you know, the nephew will get all the money. Everything will be fine. And they'll like run off into the sunset together. Right. So what does she do? She decides to, to steal the, the will. So what she does is she sneaks into the old woman's room at night, uh, goes to the safe, opens it up, gets the will out. But then the old woman awakens. Uh, and sur- and surrounded by her many cats, accuses the maid. Well, the maid says, well, I've got to go with plan B now. And she smothers the old woman there in front of her many cats. Uh, yeah. And the cats are immediately upset. You know, they realize, <laughs> whoa, you, you've overstepped your boundaries. You've killed this old woman. And when the maid goes to pick up the, the last will and testament uh, on the floor, uh, a cat Uh, A cat paw comes out and scratches her hand and she shrieks and draws back and she's bleeding at the hand. She reaches out for it again. Cat swipes her hand again. (laughs) (laughs) And and it's great because it's clearly like a like a a puppet of a cat's um, hand scratching her um, uh, cat's paw. Uh, and uh, and from there, it just becomes a full blown assault. You know, cats are leaping out at her. They're they're uh, they're they're assaulting her. They're they're chasing her around the house. She ends up barricading herself in the larder. And for some reason, like she's in there long enough that she's forced to eat what I what I think is supposed to be cat food on bread yes. in order to survive.
0: Yeah, there are just is, jars and jars of these earthenware jars of wet cat food covered with like cloth and twine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which
1: is, and it's ridiculous because, like, why are you spreading that on the biscuit? Just to eat the biscuits. If you're starving because you're barricaded in a room uh-huh. by cats, like, just eat all the biscuits up first and then you can think of, like, she's she's playing a weird long game of uh,
0: forcing herself to eat cat food. Yes. Yeah. There's a bread box. She like gets out the bread box. And it's funny because when she gets it out, you think she's going to do something with the bread box, like climb Mm -hmm. up on it to get out the window or something. But no, she just gets bread out and (laughs) and then spreads cat food on it.
1: Now, so she hangs out in there for a while, uh, presumably like days. I don't know. Mm -hmm. Uh, Finally, she's listening at the door. Seems like things have calmed down. So she creeps out with a knife, goes back up the stairs and tries once more to grab the will. But the cats disarm her. She runs away. I think she falls down the stairs. Uh, uh, oh, But before she does, she sees that the cats have, of course, begun to eat the old woman uh, who is dead in the bed. Finally, the police you know, break down the door. The lawyer and the nephew show up. Uh, they're you know horrified when they find the body of the maid. But the nephew, he's only got one thing on his mind. So he runs upstairs goes into the bedroom uh, where the, the old woman has been munched down by the cats, uh, and he sees the will on the floor. He goes to get it. Cat jumps onto his neck, rips his jugular
0: open, and he dies. Uh, we also find that once they go up there, they discover the cats have also eaten the whole maid. They've just stripped <laughs> her flesh like piranhas. Yes. and it, And it apparently has happened in a matter of seconds.
1: Yeah. So it's ridiculous but it's 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 terrific you know the, the, these cats are not only are they, they they sinister and murderous but they also understand that they have a legal claim to this house and the woman's estate and they are willing to 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 murder to protect it
0: yeah, that's something I wasn't sure about it does suggest that the cats understand the legal ramifications of what's going on. Yes. Uh, and I guess this ties in with the framing narrative, uh, which is Peter Cushing's idea that that cats secretly understand everything and run the world <laughs> and that they're listening.
1: Now you you watch the other segments. Uh, are, are they stand out at all? Well, like well, like I, I felt like I'd had i had
0: enough. You know, like yeah, it, 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 my eyes would be bigger than my stomach if I if I kept going. I mean, it's a. I'd say the movie is very front loaded on the cats because the first segment is just cats, 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 and the next two segments are about cats, but they're not constantly tons of cats hissing and screeching <laughs> and meowing. There there's a little bit more with the human characters. The second segment has Charles Bronson's daughter in it, and she plays like a girl who uh, uh, gets taken into to a new home and is mistreated by the like the the daughter who already lives there and is and is she's very mean. She's like the mean daughter in uh, in Jack Frost. And Mm -hmm. the the mean daughter eventually gets punished by uh, by Charles Bronson's daughter when she does a satanic ritual that like shrinks the mean girl down to the size of a mouse and then is tormented by the cat. But ultimately uh, she gets stepped on by a human, not by, by Uh a cat. And then uh, that scene, that segment also has a scene where the, the, the mean daughter is tormenting the main character with a remote control airplane. But while she's (laughs) like supposedly controlling the airplane, you can actually see part of the airplane just poking into the frame. So it's just sitting right there in front of her. (laughs) The third segment has Donald Pleasance, and uh, and I, I think I was texting you about this, and my phone auto-corrected his name to Donald Pleasure, which is about right, because yeah. he is a pleasure in this segment. He's wearing a red wig, so he's Ginger Donald Pleasance, and he plays this vain actor who murders his wife to try to get a beautiful younger new wife, uh, and he tries to – he's like – he's – hostile toward his dead wife's cat but the cat gets revenge on him
1: nice i believe there's a there's an iron maiden in this
0: one right yes uh, yes uh there is an iron maiden and uh it's a prop iron maiden for use on a film set but it turns out the spikes are actually metal and sharp so that when he gets closed inside <laughs> it or when somebody gets closed inside it it impales them
1: well, you know, if you're a method actor, you, you, this is how you have to work.
0: Yeah, there's a really good scene in the third segment where Donald Pleasance is demonstrating to a to a bad actress how to scream. People <laughs> should just clip out that scene.
1: Now, I, I want to include a word, a word of warning about this film. So this is very much an animals attack film from 1977. Yeah. Now, some of you might have more experience than others with animal attacks films, but certainly the older animal attacks film, you're going to run into some some questions about animal handling. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you certainly get that vibe with this uh, particular with this production, especially in that first segment, which, again, just has so many cats um, it, it must have just been a nightmare to film because I, I remember reading about uh, the Cohen brothers making Inside Lewin Davis and about just how much trouble they had shooting one cat and getting one cat to do what they wanted to do. Mm-hmm. And in this segment, uh, the 1912 segment, there are just cats everywhere. It's just, it's just awful uh, to imagine. And I couldn't find any... Thing concrete about cat mistreatment on the film, but um, IMDb uh, has, a, has a bit in the trivia claiming that cinematographer Harry Waxman threatened to quit when he found that the production was mistreating the cats, but it's not cited, so I don't know where he was saying that. I mean, I, I'm not particularly doubting it i just don't have any evidence to to back that up well
0: i gotta say i don't know if that claim is true and even if it is true i thought it was phrased in an ambiguous way so i didn't know if that meant his objection was to the production actually mistreating cats or to the fact that the movie was about the mistreatment of cats
1: right but but certainly just so many cats being used uh it does raise a red flag because if you know cats, cats in general do not want to be a part of your stupid movie project. No. They, they aren't even interested in watching your stupid movies unless you have some good high def bird or rodent action. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, the, about the most that they'll do is they'll they'll tolerate setting on you during a film if you if you don't laugh too much. Uh, <laughs> so I would say if you're if you're sensitive to this sort of thing, just skip this one all the way. Um, plus, on top of all of this, the fiction of the film involves conflict between humans and house cats. Um, so, uh, you know, it's it's going to deal with the idea of like your your fur babies as vicious murderers and something that you would have to combat.
0: Well, on the other side, though, I would say that the cats in essentially all three segments are – to the extent that there is a protagonist, the cats are the protagonists and the human character. It's like tales from the crypt. The human protagonists are bad people who are getting punished for their antagonism toward cats and the cats. win.
1: Yeah. It's, I I feel like this is kind of a golden rule of evil cat, um, horror fiction, right? The cats need to win. Yeah. Like the cats. Cat never loses. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's the case with the cat from hell. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know. We'll have to have some listeners chime in on this one. Uh, think if they can uh, th- think of any uh, examples where uh, the evil cat doesn't win.
0: I cannot think of one. I mean, it's it, it seems like a very ancient meme. The cat came back. There is all the cat's just always going to win.
1: All right. So I think we've established what this film is and what it's all about. Uh, it's time to start uh, thinking deeply about it. Okay. So. Um, The first question that I think arises from all of this, especially that first segment in which, again, cats clearly just straight up murder two people. Mm. Um, Has a house cat ever killed a human? Uh, And then I think this is a pretty interesting question to look into. Uh, And there have been a couple of articles at least that have uh, have examined it. Uh, Mike Pearl did a solid article for Vice about five years ago on this topic, talking to some experts uh, about not just the, the historical matters here, but also just the physical attack capabilities of cats and their jaws and their teeth. The consensus seems to be that, uh, that OK, there are a few situations where cats have been linked to human deaths. For example, there are reports of cats accidentally smothering babies by laying on them and this seems to have given rise to the you know the long-standing superstition that cats suck out a child's breath when they sleep this of course was also part of uh, the plot for stephen king's uh, cat's eye
0: oh yeah but uh, of course the twist there is that the cat the cat is a, is said to be the one sucking out her life essence but really it's a troll and the cat is the bodyguard protecting her from the troll Right. So so that's that's one
1: area where you can say, okay, this is a, an example where house cats have been linked to human deaths. Some people have also died from infections caused by cats, uh, such as rabies, but no human in all of recorded history has ever been like straight up attacked and killed by a house cat. Doesn't mean it hasn't happened, but it doesn't seem to have happened in a way that has been recorded and, uh, and has been made notable. Uh, and, and it basically comes back to the fact that cats even a large house cat simply doesn't have the bite strength to pull this off unlike something like a domestic dog which definitely does i mean even in the united states dogs kill 30 to 50 people a year now, Brian Palmer also wrote an article about this uh, for Slate, and he, he kicked off the article by pointing out that in 2013, uh, an Illinois man uh, allegedly plotted to murder an attorney and frame the victim's cat for the murder. Whoa. So not an example of cats actually murdering somebody, but somebody thinking they could, they could use that uh, to cover their own tracks. That
0: sounds very much like a segment that would be in The Uncanny.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, now, it, uh, Palmer points out that there have been cases where a human has reportedly had a had a scrape with a cat, gotten into a, a fight with a cat, essentially, and have to have uh, uh, you know some degree of um, of medical intervention. Uh, in 2010, a postpartum cat in Idaho bit her owner 35 times. Uh, there was a 2011 case where a Cleveland man had to be airlifted following a house cat attack. Uh, couldn't find a lot of details uh, about. Either of those uh, cases, by the way, Um, so some questions remain. But you know, really, these two accounts don't give us much to go on for a variety of reasons. House cats may engage in in, you know in in play aggressive behavior or even more legitimate aggressive behavior. They may act out in defense. Uh, There is a threshold to how much of your nonsense that a cat is going to put up with. A cat may scratch you, and a cat scratch is nothing to sneeze at. Certainly. But almost certainly not going to be lethal, right? Uh, it seems like the the main area where you see enhanced uh, danger from cats from uh, from house cats is uh, is the area of a cat getting underfoot. Mm. Uh, so such as when you're carrying stuff in, carrying in groceries, or you're doing something in the kitchen. I I, I think about this a lot. Like yep. my cat is going to be the death of me because she's under my feet when I'm trying to move, like, a, a you know, boiling spaghetti around the, the kitchen or something.
0: Yes. Uh, and Dogs can do this, too. In fact, sometimes I notice there's, like, an ironic attraction. It seems like dogs and cats often want to get under your feet right when you're doing something precarious, probably because it, like, looks unusual if you've got, like, a big package in your arms or something.
1: Yeah. Or with the cat, it's like, it's happening in the kitchen. It might be food for me. Mm-hmm. So... Uh, so I, I looked at this up a little bit, and I found a 2009 report from the CDC that uh, said that pet-related falls involving both dogs and cats injure more than 86,000 people annually. Now, this entails a number of pet activities, ranging from taking a dog uh, on a walk to stepping over a cat. and uh, also in- involves, like, chasing or running from animals. So there's a lot that, that is entailed there. Um, This particular write-up says, quote, most falls involving cats occurred at home, 85.7%. Approximately 11.7% of injuries occurred while persons were chasing cats. However, an activity was not specified in 62.1% of cases. The most frequent circumstances were falling or tripping over a cat. 29.2% involved other or unknown
0: circumstances. Now, how many of those cases where the cat caused a fall were due to someone trying to frame a cat for murder? (laughs) um yeah
1: i don't know half yeah Uh, um so the next question i have of course are are cats supernatural are they actually the spawn of satan uh obviously house cats (laughs) are not the spawn of satan they are not magical uh but of course they have they have been long associated with magical and or diabolical ideas and a lot of this seems to come from several different qualities that we observe in cats um so, for starters, cats haven't been domesticated as long as dogs and are, by some estimates, self-domesticating. So there's this idea that the, the cat retains a certain amount of power over itself that we might find uh, suspicious or intimidating at times. Mm-hmm. Cats are obviously stealthy and uh, and move around in ways that uh, that... We might uh, have a difficulty, uh, you know, detecting them and they may uh, play at hunting you, especially, uh, you know, a house cat may do this, but I've seen outdoor cats engage in this kind of behavior as well, which can be maybe a trifle unnerving. Mm -hmm. Cats are also frequently active at night. And uh, their eyes have a reflective layer called the the, the tapetum uh, lucidum that magnifies incoming light and is the reason you'll see this reflective, sometimes greenish glint to their eyes at night. And it can certainly have a kind of fairy fire look to it. Yeah,
0: they've got the same thing that like spiders have.
1: <laughs> yeah. Uh, and I think other things just to keep in mind is that, of course, cats are just really weird. Um, they're kind of paranoid because they're in this weird space between prey and predator. Um, and I feel like they're just harder to read sometimes. I yeah. feel like you can you can kind of get to know a dog pretty well, but cats pose more mystery.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of it's just personality differences in the species. Dogs tend to be much more social. They're the kind of personality that if they were a human, you'd describe as a person who's an open book. Uh, they're, yeah. they're very outward about their emotions and all that. Cats... Read to humans as aloof, reserved kind of uh playing defense, so we've
1: read a lot into that over the years um and, 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 it's, and it's, it and should come as no surprise that you see cats featuring into various uh uh cultures and religions uh, we can identify a you know wide variety of attitudes and superstitions towards cats. And they range from divine qualities, as identified by the ancient Egyptians, uh, you know, to just admirable qualities, as identified by uh, the, the prophet Muhammad. Uh, he was said to have a loyal cat named uh, Musa, and there were various traditions and legends that were swapped around uh, associated with Musa. Uh, mm-hmm. I recommend researching that. It's pretty, it's pretty interesting. In India, um, as described in uh, Nandita Krishna's excellent *Sacred Animals of India*, the domestic cat is the vehicle of um, of Shashthi, a fertility goddess popular in parts of India. Um, so, you know, you'll look at iconography of this particular goddess, and you'll see that they're clearly riding, you know, kind of standing on a house cat. Interesting. Uh, however, uh, Krishna also writes that. Uh, in parts of India, a cat crossing one's path is still considered inauspicious, though. So there's still a certain amount of negative superstition wound up in cultural attitudes towards cats as well. Mm mm-hmm. But then uh, there are a host of just superstitious cruelties involving cats. Um, in the, the Golden Bough, uh, James Frazier wrote of French shepherd traditions that involve burning or roasting cats alive in a bonfire as a way to protect the flock against sickness and witchcraft.
0: Yeah, that just seems to obviously tie into the, the historical association between cats and, and witchcraft. Cats often seen as the familiars of witches, the familiar spirits.
1: Yeah, either... Either they're working with the witches or they are themselves transformed witches. Mm-hmm. And so you see this in uh, Druidic customs uh, that survived throughout Europe. Uh, though, though he points out that other animals such as snakes and foxes suffered the same fate due to the same associations with uh, alleged witches. Yeah.
0: The cats are not witches, folks. They're, they're, they're keeping your basement rat free. Come on. What more could you want? If you're
1: going to err, I would say err on the side of believing your cat to be a tiny god, because they certainly believe they're tiny gods. Uh, there's no excuse for cruelty to cats, uh, be it your cat or somebody else's cat, be it a domestic, purely domestic house cat or a, a feral cat. Now, the next question, I guess kind of the final question that uh, the, un- the uncanny makes me uh, ponder is this. Are cats vengeful? Mm. Uh, can you know? Because these are all tales of like cats enacting revenge, uh, cats leading to the comeuppance for villainous humans, um, and it, it, it's really one that's that's interesting to think about because. You actually hear about this a lot. If you know people with cats, if you yourself have cats, stories of cats allegedly lashing out against their humans or a particular human, perhaps peeing on something that they value or slashing something up in
0: retaliation to something they don't like. Mm-hmm. I've seen behavior in cats that I've never seen in dogs like a a cat being angry at being bothered or something, and then not just reacting with the sort of defensive scratch, but like chasing you afterwards to to hiss and scratch.
1: Yeah. Uh, it, again, cats are weird. Yeah. We have to we have to keep that in mind. Uh, I, I think a lot of a lot of the a lot of this goes without saying. You know that uh, that obviously. When humans have pets, we anthropomorphize them. We anthropomorphize our dogs and our cats and any other animals we might have around the house. And in doing so, it's easy to for, forget that they are different beings, you know, that they, they live in a different sense world. They're, you know, they don't just have a small human brain inside that skull of theirs. Uh, and we've put them in strange condi- conditions that they, they didn't really fully evolve to inhabit. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, we can't think of them as just completely, uh, you know, unemotional beings. I mean, uh, so 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 the question be, be becomes one of this. Uh, so, if a cat is capable of emotional states,
0: uh, is it capable of seeking revenge? Is it capable of being vengeful or spiteful? I mean, I think of revenge as a, as an evolved adaptation that's special in social groups when like you mm-hmm. expect to be interacting with the same individuals again and again over time and you need to behave in a way that, that punishes them for behaviors, uh, across time, not just like discourages something in the moment, but, but like continues to enforce the kind of behavior you want from others, even after the behavior has stopped.
1: Yeah. So we're already in a strange position because we as very social mammals, are are trying to apply the same like social structure and, uh, and and behavioralism on creatures that are far more solitary than we are. Mm-hmm. So I was looking around for for any you know feedback on this, for any insight on this, and I ran across uh, the Cat Coach Marilyn Krieger, <laughs> who is a certified cat behavior consultant with the International Association of Animal Behavior Consultants, and uh, they've uh, they've written about this before. Um, And uh, I was looking at a particular article on Catster.com, and (laughs) they pointed out, quote, Cats always have legitimate reasons for their behaviors. Holding grudges and deliberately being irritating
0: are not among them. I guess it would depend on your definitions, though I would be skeptical of anyone saying that any organism always has legitimate reasons for its behaviors. I mean, sometimes behaviors just kind of happen.
1: Well, I mean, it makes you ask a lot of questions about revenge. Is there legitimate revenge? Yeah. (laughs) Like, if it happens in a Shakespeare play, is that like that's legitimate, or it happens in a TV drama, it's legitimate? Uh Whereas real life revenge is is rarely that simple. I mean.
0: You know, it's it, it gets it gets pretty muddy pretty quickly. I guess maybe the point here, which would seem pretty reasonable to me, is that uh, that it's it seems like a cat's time horizon for reacting to behavior is probably going to be a lot shorter, and probably going to be a lot more uh, just like basically situationally utilitarian than uh, than would be justified justified by a Wrath of Khan style revenge plot.
1: Right, yeah, I guess that's the, the big question. Are cats capable of plotting revenge? Yeah. Um, that seems, I, I think there's a strong case to say no. Uh, however, will a cat uh, scratch you, uh, bite you, or hiss at you because you did something that they did not like, in, like as an immediate response? I think the answer there is obviously yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you don't believe me, uh, you know, think, think about the last time you tried to touch your cat's belly and they weren't into it. Mm-hmm. They probably let you know. Uh, you know, cats cats will generally be very, um, if not vocal, then at least active uh, about their preferences regarding their their belly fur. I
0: remember cats uh, cats I've known being very sensitive about their paws. Like you, you don't yeah. want to touch the paws. Yeah, those are their murder weapons. Don't disrespect them. Right. It's like you cannot touch my sword.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Unless it draws your blood uh,
0: The warrior sword is sacred
1: So for a cat, Kragger points out What frequently happens is that a cat does something In response to change uh, in their immediate environment and they're highly susceptible to change in their environment. A change in the household can induce stress and anxiety in the cat. And this can lead to medical problems, like actual, like legitimate medical problems, such as urinary, uh, uh tract problems, bladder problems, etc. Uh, that may cause them to do things that can then be interpreted as acting out. Um, even things like so-called spite peeing, uh, you know, where they're they're peeing on, say, your favorite pillow or something. It might be tied to a medical issue, like some sort of bladder flare up, or it could be tied more to like a separation anxiety, uh, which may cause them to urinate on their favorite person's stuff in order to mingle their scent with that of the owner. So, again, like that's the kind of thing where that's outside of the human, um, you know, Our human uh, emotional states, for the most part, the the idea of mingling sense to feel uh, with someone else's sense to feel better about them being away from you. Mm -hmm. But within a cat sense realm, uh, that may make perfect sense. Like that is the perfect thing to do. That is the perfect comforting act.
0: Uh, Yeah. And then on the other side of it, like there are some – analogies I think people can understand pretty well like it might be harder to behave correctly and uh, maintain mastery over all your bodily functions when you're very stressed
1: yeah I mean it's it's difficult for us it's gonna be difficult for other organisms as well so I think it's worth keeping in mind that you know the cat world is different from the human world even if we're sharing the same house and I mean this applies to any animal the dog world is different from the human world even though you you spend your lives
0: together yeah you share the same space, but you don't see the world the same. All
1: right. Uh, on that note, I think we're going to go ahead and close it out here. Um, as of uh, October 2020, I believe you can watch. Uh, you can generally watch the Treehouse of Horror episodes on Disney Plus. I think that's where they're currently hosted for streaming. The uncanny was a little harder for me to get a hold of. Uh, I I had to subscribe to some sort of uh, some indie channel on Amazon Prime in order to stream it to stream it. But I don't know. It's it's probably out on YouTube or something I, as well. I
0: found it on the the tube of the second person.
1: Ah, but uh, you know th- that may change by the time you you listen to this episode. Perhaps it's streaming in a more accessible place. All right, we're going to go ahead and close the door on uh, Anthology of Horror, Volume 6. And, hey, if you like these, if you want this tradition to continue next uh, October, well, you have a little less than a year to start uh, pelting us with suggestions. What are your favorite uh, episodes of various horror and sci fi uh, anthology series that you would like us to consider, or, or your favorite segments from anthology films, uh, let us know. We would love to hear from you. In the meantime, if you want to listen to other episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, you can find us wherever you find your podcast, and wherever that happens to be, we just ask that you rate, review, and subscribe. You can always find us by going to stufftoblowyourmind.com. That will shoot you over to our iHeart page. And if you go there, there's a listing for our store. And if you go there, you can buy. By a shirt with our logo or a monster on.
0: Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app.